0: This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit garynorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Victim's Rights, The Biblical View of Civil Justice by Gary North. Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Copyright 1990. This book is dedicated to Baby Doe and the fifty million other victims who are aborted annually, worldwide. They, not their executioners, deserve our compassion. Chapter 3. Kidnapping And he that stealeth a man, and selleth him, or if he be found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. Exodus 21, 16 In chapter 2, I set forth my thesis that the pleonism, he shall surely be put to death, is binding on the civil authorities when the state initiates the prosecution of the covenant lawsuit, but it does not bind the victim when he initiates the prosecution. We must examine the implications of this principle in the case of kidnapping, a crime that is bound by the terms of the pleonism. Before getting to this problem, however, we must search for the theocentric principle that governs the crime of kidnapping James Jordan quite properly lists kidnapping under the general heading of violence. The nature of violence biblically is that it represents an attempted assault on God, an attempt to murder God by murdering his image. He lists other aspects of violence, the desire of sinful men to play God, the desire to achieve autonomous vengeance and sadomasochism. Violence should be understood as a sinner's rebellious attempt to achieve dominion by power. It is a form of revolution. The preaching of the gospel is intended to reduce violence. Ultimately, this crime and its civil penalty should be understood in terms of the assumption of a theocentric universe. Jordan's assessment is valid. Quote, the death penalty is appropriate because Kidnapping is an assault on the very person of the image of God, and as such is a radical manifestation of man's desire to murder God, like rape. It is a deep violation of personhood and manifests a deep-rooted contempt for God and His image. End quote. Nevertheless, the crime of kidnapping goes beyond the question of the image of God in man. Kidnapping is more than an assault against God's image in man. It is not simply man's blood that is inviolate. Genesis 9.6 It is also his life's calling. It is not simply his image that commands respect from other men. It is also his God-ordained assignment in life. Perhaps it would be better to argue that man's imaging also includes the calling. God is revealed in Genesis 1 as a God who works and who judges. Man images this God. Kidnapping is therefore an assault on both of these aspects of man's imaging. Who is the true owner of the kidnapper's victim? God is. God owns the whole world. Psalm 50, 10. Nevertheless, stealing a privately owned animal is not a capital crime. Exodus 22.1. Why the special case of a man? The answer is found in man's special position, subordinate under God and possessing authority over the creation. Man is made in God's image, Genesis 1.27 and 9.6. By interfering with a man's God-given calling before God, the kidnapper disrupts God's revealed administrative structure for subduing the earth. Each man must work out his salvation, or presumably work out his damnation, with fear and trembling. Philippians 2.12. The kidnapper asserts his presumed autonomy and illegitimate authority over the victim as if he were God, as if he possessed a lawful right to determine what another man's responsibilities on earth ought to be. The Death Penalty The Bible recognizes that there are two potential criminals involved in kidnapping, the actual kidnapper and the person to whom he sells the victim. The international slave trade did exist, and White slavery, kidnapping of white girls who are then sold into the Middle East or other foreign areas, still appears to exist. This passage deals with both types of criminals. And he that stealeth a man and selleth him, or if he be found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. Both the kidnapper and the recipient of the stolen victim are subject to the death penalty. Slave traders were at risk. The obvious problem with a universally mandatory death penalty is that a crime whose effects are less permanent than murder bears the same permanent penalty that murder does. Consider the case of kidnapping. The kidnapper has a strong incentive to kill the victim if he thinks that the authorities are closing in on him. The victim may later identify him as the kidnapper. Better to kill the source of the incriminating evidence. After all, the penalty for murder is the same as the penalty for kidnapping. A person can only be killed once by the civil government. Jordan recognizes this problem. So do humanist legal theorists. Then, why does the Bible specify the death penalty for kidnapping? Isn't this dangerous for the victim? Other ancient Near Eastern law codes, if we can accurately call them codes, did not impose such a harsh penalty. The Bible does not limit the death penalty to cases involving physical harm to the victim. The person who is kidnapped in order to be sold as a slave is not said to have been harmed. If anything, the kidnapper who intends to sell the victim into servitude has an economic incentive not to harm the victim, since an injury would presumably reduce the market value of the property. Yet the kidnapper potentially faces the most fearful penalty that society can inflict. Why such a concern for this crime? Sacrilege To steal from God involves sacrilege. Rushduni has made an interesting study on the meaning and implications of sacrilege, and his general comments apply in the case of kidnapping. Theft is basic to the word, and sacrilege is theft directed against God. It is apparent from this that the idea of sacrilege is present throughout Scripture. The concept of sacrilege rests on God's sovereignty, and the fact that He has an absolute ownership over all things. Men and the universe are God's property the covenant people are doubly god's property first by virtue of his creation and second by virtue of his redemption for this reason sin is more than personal and more than man-centered it is a theological offense so serious is the crime of sacrilege that it is compared by paul to adultery and idolatry romans 2:22 both of which were capital crimes in the old testament the code of hammurabi Specify the death penalty for those who stole the property of either church or state and also for those who received the stolen goods. Because sacrilege is theft, it requires restitution. Since sacrilege is theft against God, it requires restitution to God. In this case, the crime is so great that the maximum restitution is the death of the criminal. No lower payment can suffice if the state prosecutes and convicts in God's name. The implied assertion of autonomy by the criminal, who seeks to play God, represents a form of idolatry, worshipping another god. The kidnapper steals God's property, a person made in his image, and seeks to profit from the asset. This is the essence of the crime of Adam to be his god. Genesis 3.5. Future Deterrence The death penalty is final. Its beneficial effects for society are twofold. It restrains the judgment of God on society, and it provides a deterrence effect. Deterring the criminal from future crime he dies, deterring other criminals from committing similar crimes, fear of death, and deterring God from bringing his covenant judgments on the community for its failure to uphold covenant law, fear of God's wrath. Capital punishment is God's way of telling criminals, whether convicted criminals or potential criminals, that they have gone too far by committing certain crimes. It also warns the community that God's law is to be respected Obviously, there is no element of rehabilitation for the convicted criminal in the imposition of the death penalty. The state speeds the convicted criminal's march toward final judgment. The state delivers the sinner into the presence of the final and perfect judge. If we interpret the presence of the pleonasm as making the death penalty mandatory, irrespective of the wishes of the victim, then we create a problem for the victim. A mandatory death penalty may actually increase the risk to the victim once the criminal act has taken place. First, the victim may have seen the criminal. His positive identification of the kidnapper and his testimony against him can convict him. Second, should the criminal begin to suspect that he is about to be caught by the authorities, he may choose to kill the victim and dispose of the body. By disposing of the evidence of the crime, the victim loses his life, while the criminal reduces his risk of being detected. This is a good reason to suppose that The death penalty for kidnapping is a maximum allowable penalty, one which a victim can impose but need not impose on a convicted kidnapper. What if the kidnapper has stolen more than one adult person? What if one adult victim asks the court to impose a death penalty but the other victim asks for leniency? Or, if the kidnapper has stolen more than one minor, what if the parent or legal guardian of one asks for the death penalty but the parent or legal guardian of the other recommends leniency? The victim who demands execution is sovereign. The extension of mercy is not mandatory. The pleonasm of execution is attached to this law. The presence of the pleonasm indicates that capital punishment is the normal sanction. Anything less than execution is abnormal, a unique sign of leniency by the victim. The victim who specifies execution is adhering to God's written law. He is upholding the sanctity of the sanction against sacrilege. His decision is final. Can the state prosecute if the victim declines? only if the state is itself a victim. It seems reasonable to allow the state to recover the costs of searching for the victim. The kidnapper has stolen from the state by his criminal act. If the state successfully prosecutes a kidnapper, judges can impose a double restitution penalty payment for the costs incurred. But the judges cannot lawfully impose the capital sanction. They must uphold the principle of victims' rights. Confession Before Conviction there is the possibility that, in other circumstances, the threat of the death penalty may reduce the risk to the victim. A criminal in the Bible is allowed to go to the authorities before he has been caught and make a twenty percent restitution payment plus the capital value of the stolen property or unpaid vow (Leviticus 6:1-7). The kidnapped victim in the Old Testament res- presumably would have been sold as a servant. The market price of this sort of servant could have been calculated in the Old Testament the judges could also have used the Bible's fixed price system for a servant killed by a goring ox, 30 shekels of silver, Exodus 21:32, or perhaps the prices listed for human vows to the temple could have been used by the judges, Leviticus 27 3 and 7 through7. 7. The Bible always offers opportunities for repentance. By allowing the kidnapper to escape the threat of the death penalty by surrendering to the authorities, biblical law reduces the threat to the kidnapped victims in those cases. Where a kidnapper repents before he is arrested ransom, but what about the modern form of kidnapping where the kidnapper demands a ransom? The same principle operates the repenting but as yet unarrested kidnapper offers to the victim the value of the ransom demanded plus one fifth in most cases this would mean a lifetime of servitude to repay the debt servitude for the kidnapper is better for the victim and society than what the modern criminal justice system imposes. The modern criminal justice system would probably impose a life sentence in jail for the criminal at the expense of taxpayers, with parole possible, likely in a few years. The kidnapped victim gets nothing. There was a motion picture in 1956 called Ransom. The hero of the film is a rich businessman. His son is kidnapped, and the kidnappers demand a huge ransom. The police tell him that kidnapped victims wind up dead about half the time, whether a ransom is paid or not. The father decides not to pay. He goes to his bank and gets the money demanded by the kidnappers. He then calls in the local television station, which broadcasts his announcement. In front of him on a desk is the money, in cash. He says to all those listening that if his son is murdered, he intends to pay every cent of the money to anyone who will tell him the name of the person who kidnapped his son. He offers to pay the accomplices to the crime. He reminds the kidnapper of the risk of relying on the reliability of his accomplices. He then points to the money and declares to the kidnapper, This is as close to this money as you will ever get. When he returns home, his neighbors are outraged. They throw rocks through his window. He had not shown filial piety. He deserves to be an outcast. But at the end of the movie, his son is returned to him. The kidnapper was fearful of being turned in for the reward. What the movie's hero did was to place a greater priority on bringing the criminal to justice than he placed on public acceptance of his act. The statistical risk to his son, he had been told, was the same, whether he paid the ransom or not. By using the ransom money in a unique way, as a reward that would increase the likelihood of someone's becoming an informant, the father increased the odds in favor of his son's survival. The majority of crimes were probably solved as a result of informants he relied on the threat of punishment more than he did on the goodwill of the criminal in honoring the terms of the transaction, his son's life for a cash payment. He turned to the law for protection, not to the criminal's sense of of honor. In 1973, the grandson of J. Paul Getty, one of the world's richest men, was kidnapped in Italy. The kidnapping received worldwide attention. The kidnappers demanded over a million dollars as the ransom. Getty publicly refused to pay. He said that if he did, this would place his 14 other grandchildren in jeopardy. By not paying, he said he was telling all other potential kidnappers that it was useless to kidnap any of his relatives. The kidnappers cut off the youth's ear and sent it to his mother. Still, the grandfather refused. Privately, he lent $850,000 to the boy's father to pay the ransom, at 4%, of course. Getty never missed an opportunity for profit. The gamble paid off. The kidnappers released him. No other Getty relatives became victims. Equal penalties or equal results. The Bible does not forbid the victim's family to pay a ransom, but the threat of the death penalty makes the risk of conviction so great that few potential kidnappers would take the risk. Equal penalties or equal results. The Bible does not forbid the victim's family to pay a ransom, but the threat of the death penalty makes the risk of conviction so great That few potential kidnappers would take the risk, except for a very high return. The average citizen, therefore, receives additional but indirect protection because of this biblical law. The penalty to the convicted kidnapper is so high that the money which the middle class victim's relatives could raise to pay the ransom probably would not compensate most potential kidnappers for the tremendous risk involved. Presumably, kidnappers will avoid kidnapping poorer people. In effect, the threat of the death penalty increases the likelihood that members of very rich families or senior employees of very rich corporations will be primary victims of kidnappers. Also, in cases of politically motivated kidnappings, the famous or politically powerful could become the victims. They seem to be discriminated against economically by biblical law. High penalties make it more profitable for kidnappers to single their families out for attack. On the other hand, these people possess greater economic resources, making it more likely that they can more easily afford to protect themselves and their relatives. From the point of view of economic analysis, the stiff penalty for kidnapping protects the society at large, though not always the actual victim of the crime, and it protects the average citizen more than it protects the rich. The law applies to all kidnappers equally. It has varying effects on different people and groups within this society because the Bible requires equality before the law, it produces different results. To equalize the results, equal risk for rich families and poor families, the Bible would have to impose the death penalty only for kidnappers of rich people. This, as we have seen, is what Hammurabi's code did. It imposed the death penalty only to those who kidnapped the sons of aristocrats. The economic payoff would have to be made lower in the case of a kidnapper who steals a poor person. Therefore, in order to put poor families at risk, as high as that borne by rich families, the law would have to discriminate between kidnappers of the poor and kidnappers of the rich. But the kidnapper sins primarily against God, so the death penalty can be specified by the victim in both cases. God is not a respecter of persons, meaning those convicted of a capital crime. The question is not the economic status of the victims, but the nature of the crime, sacrilege, and the sanctions specified by the victims, victims' rights. Thus, a consistent application of this law in every case of kidnapping increases the risk of being kidnapped for the rich. Equality. This brings up a very important question relating to the word equality. When men demand equality, what do they really want? If they demand equality before the law, equal penalties for identical crimes irrespective of persons, then they are simultaneously demanding unequal economic results. This is not true only in the case of the variation of risk for different economic groups when a society demands the death penalty for all kidnappers. This is true of the economy in general. When men demand equal economic results, they are simultaneously demanding inequality before the law. Hayek's analysis is correct. Quote, From the fact that people are very different, it follows that, if we treat them equally, the result must be inequality in their actual position, and that the only way to place them in an equal position would be to treat them differently. Equality before the law and material equality are therefore not only different, but are in conflict with each other. And we can achieve either the one or the other, but not both at the same time. The equality before the law, which freedom requires, leads to material inequality. Our argument will be that, though where the state must use coercion for other reasons, it should treat all people alike. The desire of making people more alike in their condition cannot be accepted in a free society as a justification for further and discriminatory coercion, end quote. Biblical law is clear. Equality before the civil law is the God-sanctioned concept of equality. Equality of results does not apply to the sanctions that God imposes after a person dies, either positive sanctions or negative sanctions. The principle of positive sanctions is specified in 1 Corinthians 3, 11-15. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire." The principle of negative sanctions is specified in Luke twelve forty seven and 48. And that servant which knew his Lord's will, and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not, and did commit things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. Time Perspective the establishment of the death penalty is necessary to increase risk to the potential kidnapper, risk that is proportional to the magnitude of his proposed crime. By calculating in advance the permanent nature of the penalty, death, the criminal is forced to come to grips with the future. The criminal presumably is present oriented. Certainly, he ignores the eternal consequences of his acts. He generally lives for the moment. His long-term fate is total destruction on the Day of Judgment. He discounts this, refusing to act in terms of this knowledge. That day seems too far away chronologically, and God is not visible. Perhaps God is not going to enforce the promised penalty. Maybe God doesn't even exist, the criminal thinks to himself. Therefore, God sets the civil government's penalty so high that even a present-oriented criminal will feel the restraining pressure of extreme risk, even if his psychological rate of discount is very high. The severity of the earthly punishment testifies to the severity of the eternal punishment. It serves as an earnest or down payment on eternity. The Bible teaches us that history is linear. History has a beginning and an end. The Bible also teaches us that our thoughts as well as our deeds have consequences in history and also in eternity beyond the grave, Matthew 5:28. It tells men to redeem by back their time. Ephesians 5.16, to work while there is still light, John 9.4. If God-fearing people must be educated and motivated for them to believe such doctrines, then we have to come to grips with the reality of a world in which members of a criminal class reject all these doctrines. More than this, members of a professional criminal class self-consciously live in terms of a rival set of attitudes toward time, personal responsibility, and the consequences of human action. The possibility of the death penalty for kidnapping forces the potential kidnapper to count the cost of his transgression. Remember, a person's perception of total cost, including risk, is affected directly by his perception of time. If men discount the future greatly, as Esau did with respect to his birthright, then they will accept low cash bids for future income. Present-oriented men discount future benefits and future curses alike. The distant future is of very little concern to them. As Harvard political scientist Edward Banfield comments, quote, At the present-oriented end of the scale, the lower-class individual lives from moment to moment. If he has any awareness of the future, it is of something fixed, faded, beyond his control. Things happen to him. He does not make them happen. Impulse governs his behavior, either because he cannot discipline himself to sacrifice a present for a future satisfaction, or because he has no sense of the future. He is therefore radically improvident. Whatever he cannot use immediately he considers valueless. His bodily needs, especially for sex and his taste for action, take precedence over everything else and certainly over any work routine. End quote. A law order must recognize present oriented people for what they are. The kidnapper may be somewhat more future oriented than the lower class man. He makes plans, counts costs, and takes risks but he discounts the long-term consequences of his acts. He does not care about the effects on the victim, his family, or the community. It is this radical lack of concern for the lives and callings of other men that makes him a menace to society. To catch his attention to convince him of the seriousness of his crime, the Bible stipulates the death penalty. Richard Posner, an economist and also a judge for the U.S. Court of Appeals, acknowledges the validity of relationship between a criminal's time perspective and the need for capital punishment, but only in a footnote quote, Notice that if criminals' discount rates are very high, capital punishment may be an inescapable method of punishing very serious crimes. End quote. The total discontinuity involved in the execution of the kidnapper favors continuity in the lives of the innocent. It is the innocent people of society who deserve continuity, not the kidnappers. The decision to prosecute or to specify a penalty other than death is in the hands of the victims or his survivors. The victim is allowed by biblical law to bargain with the kidnapper in order to obtain his freedom. The kidnapper would have no way to get even with the victim, who subsequently changed his mind and called for the death penalty. Kidnapping and the Slave Trade The abolition of slavery has made kidnapping less profitable financially. Before slavery was abolished by law, the slave market offered a profit to kidnappers because they could capitalize the entire working lifetime of the victim there were numerous buyers who were willing to bid against each other for the lifetime output of kidnapped victims. Today, only families, major corporations, and civil governments are willing and able to buy back a victim, and very often not primarily because of the victim's earning power. The slave trade existed for many centuries because of the ready market for its victims. The purchase of slaves by slave buyers created the market price of the slaves from ancient Greece until the not-so-ancient 1960s. As recently as 1960, in the words of Britain's Lord Shackleton, African Muslims on pilgrimages sold slaves on arrival, using them as living traveler's checks. Slavery was officially outlawed in Saudi Arabia in 1962 and by Oman in 1970. Nevertheless, though African slavery declined sharply in the 1960s, slave trading continued to flourish in Mauritania, Mali, Niger, and Chad along the drought-stricken southern fringe of the Sahara. As recently as 1981, the United Nations Human Rights Commission reported that there were 100,000 slaves in Mauritania. Other estimates place the total number of slaves as 250,000 among the nomadic tribes of the drought-ridden Sahel in North Africa. The slave owners are Moors, Islamic, while the slaves are Blacks from Senegal. There are no open slave markets because the trade is officially illegal. The biggest part of the trade is in children. They belong to the owners of the mothers. A steady economic demand for slaves created the demand for new victims. Mm. The slave traders, so hated and despised in the 18th and 19th centuries by respectable English-speaking society, including most slave owners and equally despised by slave-owning writers in the ancient world, were, from a strictly economic point of view, nothing less than the paid agents of the buyer's. They were performing specialized work as purchasing agents for slave buyers. The Arab and native African kidnappers were, to that extent, merely the specialized collection agents of the slave buyers. They were economic middlemen, entrepreneurs. The entrepreneur necessarily serves the wants of consumers. In every free market transaction, the potential consumers of any economic good or service are competing with other consumers for control over all scarce economic resources. They compete directly and indirectly for the final output of the economy. The outcome of this competition establishes prices, quality standards, and costs related directly to the production of all economic goods. The middlemen, entrepreneurs, simply serve those consumers whose competing bids are expected to produce the highest profits. Consumers ultimately determine prices and therefore also costs. This economic process was no less true of the slave trade. It is one of the peculiar aspects of the peculiar institution of American Negro slavery that the final consumers refuse to recognize their own personal responsibility as economic actors and political voters for the operations of the entire slave delivery system. What we should recognize here is the relationship between the abolition of compulsory slavery and the reduction of involuntary servitude for citizens in general. By making illegal the market for imported slaves, Western nations reduced the demand for imported slaves in the early 1800s. This, in turn, reduced the risk of being kidnapped for the average African. A policy of state-enforced coercion against slave buying reduced the profit-seeking private coercive activity of kidnapping Africans thousands of miles away. This policy worked only because, one, the British Navy enforced its regulations against the slave traders. Two, a majority of citizens in the recipient nations were steadily educated to reject the idea of the legitimacy of involuntary servitude. And three, slavery's defenders were defeated on the battlefield in the case of the American South in the 1860s. The economic lesson, disregarding the needs and preferences of slaveholders, the final users, by outlawing slavery led to the reduction of the entire slave trade. The profitability of the international slave trade was reduced. We learned that there are cases where state coercion is valid When that coercion is directed against private coercers, the anti-slave trade legislation recognized the complicity of slave owners, final users, in the coercive international slave trade. The market for slaves was not a free market, for the supply side of the equation was based on coercion. Monopoly returns and reduced crime. There is a curious myth that laws against evil acts do not reduce the total number of these acts that criminals commit. Some critics even go so far as to argue that the very presence of the law subsidizes evil in the case of laws against the sale of illegal drugs or laws against prostitution. Somehow, passing a law makes the prohibited market more profitable, and therefore the law leads to greater output of the prohibited substances or services. This is a very odd argument when it comes from people who defend the efficiency and productivity of laissez-faire economics. A fundamental principle of economics is this. The division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. This was articulated by Adam Smith in Chapter 3 of Wealth of Nations, 1776. Another basic principle is this one. The greater the division of labor, the greater the output per unit of resource input. In short, the greater the efficiency of the market. When the market increases in size, it makes possible an increase in cost-effective production. Advertising and mass production techniques lower the cost of production and therefore increase the total quantity of goods and services demanded. This is well understood by all economists. Nevertheless, there are some people who still believe that laws against so-called victimless crimes, sins that they do not regard as major transgressions, I suspect, actually increase the profitability of crime. On the contrary, such laws increase the risk of the prohibited activities, both to sellers and consumers prices rise, the market shrinks, per unit costs rise, efficiency drops. What such laws do is create monopoly returns for a few criminals. But the critics of such laws conveniently forget that monopoly returns are always the product of reduced output. This, in fact, is the conventional definition of a monopoly. Thus, civil laws do reduce the extent of the specified criminal behavior. They confine such behavior to certain criminal subclasses within the society. Biblically speaking, such laws place boundaries around such behavior. There is no doubt that 19th century laws against the slave trade drastically reduced the profitability of the international slave trade. These laws increased the risks for slavers, reduced their profits, and narrowed their markets. The result was a drop in output, slavery, per unit of resource input. Household Evangelism Apart from the one exception provided by the Jubilee Law, the Old Testament recognized the legitimacy of involuntary slavery of foreigners only when the slaves were female captives taken after a battle. Deuteronomy 20:10 10-11, and 14. To fight a war for the purpose of taking slaves would have been illegitimate, for this was and is the foreign policy of empires. It is true that the Jubilee Law did allow both the importation of pagan slaves and the purchase of children from resident aliens. But the purpose of this practice was primarily covenantal, bringing slaves of demon-possessed cultures into servitude under Israelite families that were in turn under God. Once the New Testament gospel became an international phenomenon that spread outward from local churches rather than from a central sanctuary in Jerusalem, there was no longer any need to bring potential converts into the land through purchase. Jesus completely fulfilled the terms of the Jubilee Law, including the kingdom-oriented goals of the imported slave law, he transferred the kingdom from the land of Israel to the church international. Therefore say I unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Matthew 21, 43. He abolished the Jubilee's land tenure laws, as well as the slaveholding laws associated with the land of Israel as the exclusive place of temple sacrifice and worship. Adoption Nevertheless, in principle, there remains a modern Christian practice that resembles the Old Testament Jubilee slave law. It is the practice of adoption. Christians pay lawyers to arrange for the adoption of infants whose pagan parents do not want them. This is true household adoption rather than permanent slavery, but biblical law requires children to support parents in their old age, so the arrangement is not purely altruistic. The practice of adoption is governed by civil law in order to reduce the creation of a market for profit therefore discouraging the kidnapping of infants. But the economics of modern adoption is similar to the Old Testament practice of buying children from resident aliens. Adoption is a very good practice. Children are bought out of slavery inside covenant-breaking households. Rushduni refers to kidnapping as stealing freedom. He comments, The purpose of man's existence is that man should exercise dominion over the earth in terms of God's calling. This duty involves the restoration of a broken order by means of restitution. To kidnap a man and enslave him is to rob him of his freedom. A believer is not to be a slave, 1 Corinthians 7.23, Galatians 5.1. Some men are slaves by nature. Slavery was voluntary. And a dissatisfied slave could leave, and he could not be compelled to return. And other men were forbidden to deliver him to his master, Deuteronomy 23.15-16. The purpose of freedom is that man exercise dominion and subdue the earth under God. A man who abuses his freedom to steal can be sold into slavery in order to work out his restitution. Exodus twenty two three. If he cannot use his freedom for its true purpose, godly dominion, reconstruction, and restoration, he must then work towards restitution in his bondage. End quote. Conclusion Kidnapping is a crime against God, man, and the social order. It steals men's freedom. It asserts the autonomy of the kidnapper over the victim. It substitutes the kidnapper's profit for the calling God gives to each man. It attacks God through his image, man. The kidnapper is therefore subject to the death penalty at the discretion of his victim. The potential imposition of the death penalty produces unequal risks for different economic classes. The rich are more likely to be victims in a non-slave society where the quest for a ransom payment is the primary motivation for the kidnapper. Equality before the law is the fundamental principle of biblical law enforcement. Inequality of economic results is therefore inescapable. By imposing a single penalty, death, the law increases the percentage of rich kidnapped victims. The legislated abolition of slavery reduces the market demand for stolen men, thereby reducing the profit accruing to kidnappers and increasing the safety from kidnapping for the average citizen. To be effective, however, the majority of potential slave owners must agree with the abolition or else be fearful of violating the law. A profit-seeking black market in slaves would thwart the economic effects of this law, namely, reduced demand for slaves. The high penalty imposed on both kidnapper and buyer, if coupled with the moral education of potential buyers of slaves, the final users, reduces the size and therefore the efficiency of the slave market. Remember Adam Smith's observation, the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. Finally, the death penalty overcomes the short-run, present-oriented time perspective of the potential kidnappers. The magnitude of the punishment calls attention to the magnitude of the crime. A death penalty forces the criminal to contemplate the possible results of his actions. As with all other crimes except murder, the victim has the final authority to specify the appropriate penalty, up to the biblically specified limit of the law. Rushduni does not consider the concept of victims' rights in his institutes. He writes that, quote, The death penalty is mandatory for kidnapping. No discretion is allowed the court. To rob a man of his freedom requires death, end quote. I would agree with this statement if it were qualified as follows, quote, The death penalty is mandatory for kidnapping. No discretion is allowed the court once the victim has specified the death of the kidnapper as his preferred penalty, end quote. To deny the victim the legal right to specify the appropriate sanction is to deny the concept of victims' rights. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice... or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.